Imagine a typical day in the distant future. Our descendants ride zero-emission public transit and enjoy healthy, abundant food grown without herbicides. Finally, humans have adjusted their lifestyles to live in harmony with the universe. That utopia is about to be disrupted. But this time, the universe is responsible. Suddenly, hundreds of comets hit the Earth. No one has ever seen this many impacts before. It only takes a few hours for astronomers to realize the cause. A supermassive black hole. The dark giant at the center of our galaxy has been slowly consuming all the matter around it. Now, our solar system is next on the chopping block. The comets pelting Earth normally form a barrier around our solar system. But as the supermassive approaches, some of them are drawn into its powerful gravitational hold. Others bounce off the edge of the swirling accretion disk, rocketing towards the Earth instead. The crashes cause untold damage and death worldwide. But those who survive are in for a worse fate. Annihilation by Black Hole. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals by Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on black holes, mysterious invisible objects with the power to alter space and time. Their inescapable gravitational pull gobbles up all the matter that passes too close. Last episode, we discussed how astronomers and physicists, including Albert Einstein, considered black holes to be science fiction. But in 1971, astronomer Paul Merton discovered the first one, Cygnus X1. Then, research into the phenomenon exploded. Today, we'll discuss the theories about one of the most recently discovered types of black holes, supermassives. These mind-bendingly powerful giants initially shocked astronomers with their size, age, and especially location. Every known galaxy contains a supermassive black hole at its center, including our own, the Milky Way. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Scientists never set out to find supermassive black holes. Instead, in a way, they found us through radio waves. Astronomers began intercepting intergalactic radio waves in the 1940s, but they had no idea where they came from. Later, more advanced radio telescopes showed that many of the signals appeared to originate from specific areas. Regular telescopes showed the signals came from celestial objects emitting light. At first, researchers thought they'd found radio wave-generating stars. But no one had ever encountered this kind of star before. Ever cautious, astronomers gave these yet-unknown entities their own name, quasi-stellar radio sources. They shortened it to quasars. In order to determine if they were really looking at stars, astronomers evaluated all the electromagnetic energy the quasars emitted. Electromagnetic energy occurs when objects release electric or magnetic waves. All these waves, including radio waves, fall on a spectrum. At one end are high-frequency waves, like gamma rays and X-rays. At the other end are low-frequency waves, like infrared and radio. Each element in the universe has a specific wave signature. By analyzing the electromagnetic frequencies that came from quasars, astronomers could determine what types of elements they were made of. But in astronomy, nothing is ever easy. The energy from the quasars was absolutely unintelligible. Whatever they were made of, it didn't appear on our periodic table of elements. But after some puzzling, the answer presented itself. Caltech astronomer Martin Schmidt noticed the familiar signature for hydrogen among the chaotic, incomprehensible data. Electromagnetic signatures are vastly complicated. In the simplest terms, physicists expected to find indicators of an element at specific intervals of the electromagnetic spectrum. Think of it like a barcode that always appears in the same place, like on the back of a box. Schmidt realized that hydrogen's barcode still appeared in the data from the quasar, but it wasn't in its usual place on the spectrum. If the barcode used to be on the back of the box, now it was on its front. Somehow the hydrogen inside the quasar had been shifted into the lower frequencies. Usually, a shift in an atom's electromagnetic signature means that it's traveling away from Earth and fast. But astronomers had never encountered such a dramatic change. Never before had every element inside a celestial object been rendered completely unrecognizable. Which meant 
quasars had to be traveling faster than any other object ever observed in space. Of course, this led to a new line of inquiry. Scientists wanted to know how and why quasars moved so fast. Their answer took them as far back into the past as it's possible to go. Specifically, 14 billion years ago to the beginning of time, the Big Bang. The Big Bang was the start of our universe. Theoretically, all the matter in existence began as a tiny, dense, hot object that exploded to create everything. The force of that blast is still steadily expanding the universe and pushing objects like quasars at high speeds. The quasars had traveled so far, it wasn't easy to measure exactly how much distance laid between them and Earth. But the electromagnetic scrambling of quasars' elements indicated that they were at least two billion light years away. That made quasars the most distant objects ever observed. And that led to yet another question. Astronomers wanted to know how quasars were even visible from Earth when they were so far away. That answer, for once, was simple. Quasars had to be incredibly luminous, which meant they put out unimaginable amounts of energy. Astronomers calculated that each quasar had an output of at least a trillion suns every second. Researchers had no way to account for that amount of energy. Stars run on nuclear fusion, which couldn't possibly match the incredible output of a quasar. There was only one way to generate all that power, gravity. And there's only one object in the known universe that harnesses gravity to generate light, a black hole. Of course, we all know the light doesn't come from the black hole itself. A quasar's luminosity is actually an incredibly radiant accretion disk around a gravitational giant. As you may recall from part one, the accretion disk is a wide, thin radius of gas, light, and debris spinning around a feeding black hole. But even with this explanation, the energy output was so extreme, astronomers knew they weren't looking at just any black hole. To generate this amount of light, quasars had to be millions or even billions of times heavier than the sun. For context, the first black hole ever discovered, Cygnus X1, is the size of 15 solar masses. Quasars are a whole different breed. This discovery led to a new category of black holes, supermassives. With their larger mass and remarkable energy output came a completely new set of behaviors. Like smaller black holes, supermassives also feed to increase their mass, but the event looks entirely different. Cygnus X1, for example, is consuming its companion star even as we speak. But it won't finish for thousands or perhaps even millions of years. On the other hand, a quasar, billions of times more massive and powerful than Cygnus X1, can polish off a star in a matter of years or even weeks. While average black holes nibble, supermassives gulp. This ability made astronomers suspect that a feeding supermassive looks and acts very different than the average feeding black hole. 
The NASA Chandra X-ray Observatory captured images of feeding supermassives starting around 2005. From there, they developed an idea of how this violent, cosmically rapid process could unfold. Supermassive black holes are too large to have companion stars. They warp and engulf astral matter far too quickly to establish a recognizable orbit. Instead, when a star approaches one of these gravitational giants, it immediately starts to bend out of shape. This phenomenon is called tidal disruption. Think of how tides work on Earth. Our moon's gravitational pull tugs at the waters in our oceans. But the all-powerful, supermassive black hole exerts a far greater force. Instead of just moving a single kind of matter on a sun, like water on our planet, a supermassive's tidal disruption affects the entire object at once. It literally rips the star apart. The intense gravitational pull rapidly stretches the stellar matter thin. Very quickly, it no longer resembles its former self. This deconstructed matter whips toward the black hole in an inescapable vortex. At least astronomers assume it would be inescapable. But perhaps that's not the case. Some evidence suggests that a portion of matter from the star may actually be able to avoid the violent feed. This is because when the supermassive flattens the star like a noodle, the black hole slurps one end of it, just like an unscrupulous diner might suck down their spaghetti. But the black hole's gravity spins the noodle so fast, the matter at the free end of it may break off. Once disconnected from the rest of the dying star, it could have enough velocity to leave the galaxy. In the most basic terms, a supermassive strength may work against it during feeding. But the mechanics of how this process begins and the intricacies of the multiple forces involved remain a mystery. Even though supermassives may lose some of the matter within their grasp, their accelerated eating should explain their incredible mass. But it doesn't. All evidence indicates that quasars have been feeding longer than almost any other black hole in existence. They tend to be on the very fringe of our universe, between 13 and 14 billion light-years away. The closer celestial objects are to the center of the universe, the younger they are. Quasar's location on the outside edge suggests they existed around 500 million years after the Big Bang, making them one of the most ancient objects in existence. But rapid feeding for billions of years still can't explain just how quasars ended up so massive. Because even if they absorbed matter continuously from the moment of their birth to the present, they still couldn't gather enough substance to grow as massive as they are today. Astronomers call this the timing issue. Somehow, quasars and other supermassives overcame this physical limitation to reach their behemoth size. There are only two possible solutions to this puzzle. Perhaps these giant black holes somehow predate the Big Bang. But there's no way to determine if this is the case. All the other tools astronomers use to date celestial objects are based around the Big Bang as a starting point. 
But the other solution leaves just as many questions. Perhaps these gravitational giants work differently than every other kind of black hole in the universe. Coming up, violent cosmic showdowns between black holes. Hello, listeners. It's Richard from Parcast Network. We all know that when it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow our love story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Astronomers discovered supermassive black holes by studying ancient objects emitting light and radio waves, quasars. These unimaginably enormous black holes had never been predicted by mathematical theory. In fact, they defied the physics that astronomers thought placed a limit on the growth of all black holes. This expansion speed barrier is called the Eddington Limit. It's named for the man who discovered it, English astronomer Arthur Eddington. This principle establishes a maximum growth rate for black holes based on the photons released during feeding. Here's why photons are so important. Traveling particles of light exert pressure. The light trapped in the accretion disk of a feeding black hole creates an outward force. The more a black hole consumes, the more luminous and forceful that light becomes. In other words, it gets brighter and pushes nearby matter away. Eventually, the accretion disk prevents additional matter from crossing the event horizon. But applying the Eddington limit to supermassive black holes creates a conundrum. If supermassives can't eat fast enough to get as large as they are today, there must be another way for them to grow. Or perhaps, Supermassive black holes don't need to grow. Maybe they were simply born big. That suggests that there must be another way for black holes to form besides a supernova. Some astronomers think supermassives have a special formation process called direct collapse. Theoretically, a cloud of gaseous elements could accumulate, drawn together by their mutual, albeit small, gravitational pull. 
As more and more gas gloms onto this growing cloud, the gravity could overwhelm it and compress it into a black hole, just like the dense core of a dead star. But the conditions required to create and grow such a cloud are specific. According to a 2017 simulation by the Flatiron Institute Center for Computational Astrophysics, some very young galaxies might have worked together to create the perfect environment. In the first several hundred million years after the Big Bang, new galaxies developed alongside each other. Some became the breeding ground for stars, while others remained more formless groups of gases. As the stars were born in the more active galaxy, their nuclear fusion sent jets of radiation out into the gases of their undeveloped neighbors. Those electromagnetic waves heated up the vapor. The higher temperatures discouraged the clouds from becoming stars. Because they couldn't coalesce, those gas clouds just continued accumulating mass. As they grew more massive, the heavier elements gathered in the center, forming a vortex. Like water creating a funnel as it sucked down a drain, the gases collapsed into a black hole. These clouds skipped the astral step altogether, hence their name, Direct Collapse. According to a study by Shantanu Bazu and Arpan Das, a computer simulation estimated how long this process might take. It claimed the gaseous cloud would need 150 million years to accumulate enough mass to collapse into a black hole. The resulting super-dense voids were theoretically much larger than the typical black holes that formed in a supernova. Researchers at the Flatiron Institute's Center for Computational Astrophysics estimate that they initially had masses equal to 100,000 of our suns, or even up to one million suns. Once these supermassives formed, the unique conditions of their young universe continued to help them grow. Although they surely consumed stars like their more modern counterparts, they also had access to a more convenient food source, formless gas clouds called nebulae. Black holes could theoretically gulp down nebulae much more quickly than astral matter because the gases lack force-generating photons. Remember, according to the Eddington limit, light constrains a black hole's ability to consume matter with maximum efficiency. By bypassing the Eddington limit, these direct collapse black holes added to their mass much more rapidly than their more modern counterparts. Astronomers like Basu think that these ancient black holes became the supermassive quasars we observe today. Right now, there's less free-floating gas in the universe than there was when it was young. So newer black holes often don't have access to nebulae and can't grow as quickly. By Basu's estimation, no new supermassive black holes have formed since the universe was 150 million years old. Now, it's about 14 billion years old. But not everyone agrees with Basu. Perhaps there's another way supermassive black holes are born, aside from direct collapse. And it's a whole lot more violent. Like so many other discoveries about supermassive black holes, astrologists and physicists stumbled on this one almost by accident. They were really going after gravitational waves. 
Gravitational waves date back to Einstein's theory of relativity. He predicted that the movement of any mass generated physical waves through space and time. Imagine dropping a rock into a still pool of water. When it hits, it creates ripples. Gravitational waves are the same thing, except instead of generating waves through water, massive objects literally cause a compression and lengthening of space and time. Although Einstein's idea made sense, no one ever actually figured out how to detect gravitational waves. The reason? Most of the moving masses in our universe, even huge celestial objects like our Sun and Earth, created too small a vibration for humans to measure. In 1970, an experimental physicist named Ray Weiss decided to try his hand at the problem. He crafted an ingenious instrument made up of two laser beams, mirrors, and a photon reader. In very simple terms, if the photon reader captured a change in the laser's behavior, that indicated a gravitational wave. Weiss referred to it as setting a trap for Einstein's mythical vibrations. Although Weiss's idea was theoretically straightforward, many of his peers thought that putting it into practice would be folly. Even with the trap, Weiss was attempting to measure unbelievably small movements that could come from billions of light years away. One of the skeptics was theoretical physicist Kip Thorne. As we discussed last time, Thorne famously won a wager with Stephen Hawking about whether or not Cygnus X1 was a real black hole. Thorne was so dubious of Weiss's idea, he even printed his doubts in a physics textbook. But Weiss eventually won him over. Thorne would go on to support the project all the way to its completion, a process that took over 40 years. Setting Weiss's trap proved difficult on many fronts. For one, it was tough to find funding. They needed hundreds of millions of dollars to detect a signal that no one actually knew for sure existed. Interference was another problem. Weiss's instrument was designed to capture gravitational waves, but it could also pick up on all other kinds of waves. Ambient sound, the seismic movement of the Earth, or even just the distant rumble of traffic. Each one of these interferences had to be accounted for. Eventually, Weiss and his team took out the ultimate insurance policy. In order to fully guarantee that they could differentiate between an actual gravitational wave and any local interference, they installed two completely separate sets of instruments almost 2,000 miles apart one in Hanford, Washington, and one in Livingston, Louisiana. That way, only a signal that triggered both instruments simultaneously could be a true gravitational wave. By September 2015, both centers had a name, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO for short. The installations were fully operational, but still in a testing phase. In the early morning of September 14, 2015, technician Robert Schofield was hard at work trying to finish calibrating the Louisiana machine. By 4 a.m., 
Schofield and his colleagues still had another hour's worth of tasks to complete. They were all exhausted. The team decided to pack it in and finish the project tomorrow. It was an extremely lucky stroke of laziness. It turned out their final calibrations weren't so crucial after all. Less than 40 minutes later, the machines were back online. The trap was set. And a gravitational wave, one that had been on the move for 1.3 billion years, passed through both centers. If Schofield and his team had continued working, the Louisiana installation would have missed it. Instead, both observatories were online and caught it. This was a massive, unexpected discovery. Physical proof of Einstein's theoretical waves, but analysis of the data delivered yet another gift. The wave showed up as slow oscillations at first, which grew faster and faster. These characteristics made astrophysicists like Kip Thorne suspect that the pulse was caused by two black holes orbiting each other, getting closer and closer until they finally collided and combined. And these were no small black holes. Their estimated masses were 26 and 39 times bigger than the sun. Their orbit was so fast, they circled each other hundreds of times a second. The black hole they created was 62 solar masses. That incredibly powerful convergence released an enormous gush of energy, 50 times larger than the output of every star in the universe combined. Kip Thorne described it as a veritable storm in the fabric of space and time. But as they always do, this discovery led to another question. Astronomers wanted to know what would happen if one of these forceful space collisions occurred in our own galaxy. No one knows what happens to matter in close proximity to two warring black holes. But it can't be good. Coming up, what happens when supermassive black holes live in our own cosmic neighborhood? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the story. Supermassives continue to challenge the way astronomers and physicists think about our universe. They form, feed, and generate energy in a completely different manner than a typical black hole. 
But up through the 1990s, astronomers only observed these giants from very far away. For the most part, that was comforting. Supermassive black holes represented unimaginable destruction and violence. On the other hand, it would be much easier to gather data on a specimen that wasn't billions of light years away. So, perhaps with some trepidation, astronomers turned their sights to our own Milky Way. In order to look at the center of our galaxy, astronomers pointed their telescopes at the constellation Sagittarius, the Bowman. Their view was probably familiar to you, a stunning band of gas and stars in the night sky. This is what most of us think of when we hear the Milky Way. But for an astronomer, that beautiful display is actually interference. It's other stars and free-floating gas that stand in the 26,000 light years between Earth and the target, the center of our galaxy. Instead of trying to see around all those stars blocking the view, astronomer and Nobel Prize-winning physicist Andrea Ghez decided to use them. In the 1990s, Ghez and her team at the UCLA Galactic Center Group began tracking the movements of individual stars. In order to ensure the best view possible of the crowded galactic center, Ghez sought out the biggest telescope she could find. In this case, that meant ascending to the top of Mount Mauna Kea, a dormant volcano on the island of Hawaii. At its peak, the Keck Observatory sits nearly 14,000 feet above sea level. There, Gez could stare into space through one of the largest telescopes in the world. But Keck had more going for it than just its size. Its location was also strategic. The extreme elevation not only gets the telescope slightly closer to the stars it tracks, it also provides consistently low humidity, which allows for a clearer image. The telescopes at Keck Observatory are also outfitted with special equipment. It combats a problem that plagues any instrument trying to see over a long distance, atmospheric distortion. Getz describes the phenomenon like trying to see an object in a rushing river. The water is clear and it's possible to see the object, but the liquid speed warps your view. The gases in Earth's atmosphere also distort light. To a certain extent, our eyes experience the same distortion that telescopes do. Think about how a faraway landscape looks on a hazy day. But multiply that effect by many hundreds. That's what telescopes and astronomers have to deal with when looking at objects millions of light years away. The Keck telescope combats atmospheric distortion with a co-opted military technology called adaptive optics. Essentially, this system allows a telescope to cheat atmospheric distortion by providing the instrument with a star it can control. An artificial star generated with a powerful laser beam. The laser shoots into space and is subjected to the same distortion as all the other celestial objects in the telescope's viewfinder. But the telescope's computer knows exactly what the light would look like under perfect conditions with no warping. So it compensates for that. When the laser is accurately displayed, so is everything else the telescope sees. 
Inside the telescope, the computer manipulates a very sensitive adjustable mirror. It reverses the atmospheric distortion and relays the more accurate image to the astronomer. With this technology at her fingertips, Gez captured some of the clearest images ever recorded of the mysterious center of the Milky Way. Finally, she could make out different stars and confirm their position near the middle. In 1995, she finally began tracking their movements. Over the course of the next 20 years, she took many, many photographs of them and eventually built predictable patterns. The orbits revealed something astonishing, incredible speed. The stars Gez and her team tracked moved around the center of the Milky Way at millions of miles an hour. Based on those speeds, Gez estimated that whatever they're orbiting, it weighs at least four million solar masses. There's only one thing that could be that huge and remain invisible a supermassive black hole. Gez proved that our galaxy is anchored around a gravitational giant. Her findings were so revolutionary, they won her a Nobel Prize in October 2020. But they weren't definitive. They opened a plethora of questions that researchers still don't have an answer for. The enormous black hole at the center of our galaxy isn't releasing a huge amount of light and energy like quasars. It's invisible, inactive, and not feeding. Yet it's surrounded by matter. Most astronomers would probably expect the stars orbiting the supermassive to be consumed. It's possible that because of the way supermassive black holes alter time, we aren't able to perceive whatever is happening at the center of our galaxy. Maybe the black hole is devouring stars, but we just can't observe the effects yet. Or it's possible that our resident supermassive has more secrets to unlock, and we just have to keep watching. After Gez's discovery, other astronomers wanted to know if our galactic neighborhood was unique or if they could find a pattern. Luckily, the perfect tool was already in orbit, the Hubble Space Telescope. A team of astronomers chose to use the data coming back from Hubble to learn more about what laid in the center of distant galaxies. They called themselves the Nukers because they focused on the nucleus of each star system. The team did their best to replicate Gez's process. They estimated the speed of the stars orbiting the center. Their results were nowhere near as exact as what Gez had calculated with the high resolution of the Keck Observatory, but they were able to get in the ballpark. Luckily, supermassives are a pretty big ballpark. Every single galaxy Hubble beamed back to Earth was like ours. They all had a supermassive black hole at their center. According to prominent astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, quote, we now just assume every galaxy, even ones we have yet to confirm, will have a supermassive black hole in their center. This was an astonishing finding. Ever since black holes were first discovered on paper back in 1918, everyone who has researched them, scientists and regular people alike, thought they were horrifying. 
black holes in their all-powerful, matter-consuming, time-and-space-bending fury were an unthinkably destructive force. But even if that's true, they also appear to be an essential building block of our universe. The Nuker's principal finding was that galaxies could not exist without black holes, particularly supermassives. Galaxies represent the incredible organization of matter that otherwise would be drifting aimlessly through space. Perhaps most importantly to you and me, galaxies create the conditions necessary for our solar system and for the wholly unique circumstances of our life-giving planet. Astronomers are still trying to better understand the relationship between supermassive black holes and the galaxies that surround them. As far as they can tell, mature galaxies and supermassives can't exist without each other. Andrea Ghez put forth one theory. Perhaps some unknown process generates the raw material for each at the same time. In any case, the development of a galaxy and a supermassive black hole appears to be symbiotic somehow. According to existing data, the larger the mass of a supermassive black hole, the greater an area its accompanying galaxy will occupy. It's possible that the galaxy-supermassive connection is built on some kind of mutual cooperation. This tandem growth suggests communication between the two. Somehow, each is able to keep the development of the other in check. Astronomers do know that growing black holes release radiation, which heats up gas. Warmer gas is less likely to coalesce into a star, which stops the galaxy from expanding with new solar systems. So, an enlarging black hole inhibits the growth of a galaxy. But when that happens, the voids do something unexpected. They appear to stop feeding. Remember, the supermassive black hole Andrea Ghez observed at the center of our galaxy also appears to be dormant. When a gravity well isn't feeding, it acts solely as a massive anchor, stabilizing the stars around it into a consistent orbit. Astronomers have no idea what triggers a black hole to stop consuming matter. Until they observed this behavior, there was no reason to think that an expanding black hole would ever stop absorbing all the mass that was in reach. We may not know why supermassives turn quiet at the center of the galaxies they nurture, but we do know this. We should be grateful. Black holes can kill you, but for right now, one is keeping you alive. Thanks for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with a new episode. For more information on black holes, amongst the many sources we used, we found Nova's documentary, Black Hole Apocalypse, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh with writing assistance by Allie Wicker and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard again. Searching for your new favorite show? Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.